So if you have a Bible or device, you want to turn there or swipe there, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6. You'll also be able to follow along on the screen if you want to do that. So thus far, the author of Hebrews has repeatedly made the case, made his case, for our need or for the reader's need of Jesus. So in pursuit of everything in life, in pursuit of life, in pursuit of love, we find what we are looking for ultimately in Jesus. Jesus is better than anything we look to for satisfaction, and he is better than any spouse that we might commit to. In our yearning for rest, we will only find true rest in Jesus and Jesus alone. As we see our need for forgiveness of sin and salvation, we will not find what we need until we encounter Jesus. And knowing this to be true is one thing. Okay? We can know this about Jesus, but living in this way is altogether different. The author of Hebrews knows that we are prone to be distracted, to become complacent, to wander away from Jesus, to not listen to what we should listen to. And so what we find throughout the book of Hebrews is constant warnings, continual warnings to set our hope on Jesus and Jesus alone. Warnings to not be sluggish about trusting in Jesus. And today we have a focus on promise. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And so we've just been in a section of Hebrews where the author was talking about immature people, talking about unsaved people, people who fall away from Jesus. And now he's coming back around and he's focusing on promise, which I just love how all of this comes together. So it's not as though you're immature, forget you. You're immature. You're in danger of falling away. Let me remind you of God's promise. So that's what we get this morning. So let me read Hebrews 6. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So a quick word on Melchizedek. Um, so we're not going to talk about Melchizedek at all this morning, even though it's mentioned right there at the end of the verse. 
Next week is all about Melchizedek. So we'll get plenty of dose of Melchizedek next week, but we're not going to touch on him this week. So today, we get a full-blown reason as to why and how Christians can and should be really confident people. And it's because of God's promises. Also why Christians should be really humble people as well. Because of God's promise to his people. So, regarding God's promise, in verse 13, we hear a reference to a promise made to a man named Abraham. So, I think it's really easy to read over this, maybe assume we know what this is talking about. So I just want to hit pause here and talk briefly about what's going on. What's being referred to here when the author is referring to Abraham? So Abraham was the first Hebrew. He was the first Israelite. God came to this man living in sin, and he called him out of his land, and in so doing, he was also calling him out of his idolatry. And when God called him, God promised to Abraham to make his name great and to bless the whole of the world through Abraham. But all of this hinged on Abraham having a child. Now the problem here is Abraham was 90 years old at this point. So it didn't look good. But God is faithful and he delivered on his promise. He miraculously blessed Abraham with a son. This was his only son. And, and what follows in the years that, that came after this was just a crazy story. And we would say sickening to our modern senses. God told Abraham to take his one and only beloved son and to offer him up as a sacrifice. Now, what is so impressive in this scenario is not that. What's impressive is Abraham's faith in all of this. He does everything that God commands him to do, all the way to the point where his son is on an altar and he is holding a knife over his son. And it is at that moment that God comes to Abraham again and he tells him to put the knife down. But even leading up to this, so Abraham's son, his name was Isaac. They're going to this place where the sacrifice is going to be offered and Isaac asks his dad, where's the, where's the offering? And Abraham told his son, God will provide the offering he believed that God would give him what was needed. And he also believed that if his son was going to be sacrificed, which is what he thought at that moment, if his son was going to be sacrificed, Abraham believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. We we're going to find that out later on in the book of Hebrews. Genesis 22, going, going back to this story. Verses 16 and 17 read this way. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So what we know about this event with Abraham 
and Isaac is that it was intended to be a one-time event. So, so there's no one that, uh, today, th there's not going to be anyone that God's going to come to and, and ask us to offer our one son or one child as an offering. Like, that, that's not going to happen. This was a one-time event that was intended to foreshadow a similar but a much greater event. So God, as the faithful father, would not just be faced with the idea of sacrificing his one beloved son, but he would actually go through with the sacrifice of his son, his one son, his beloved son. Up to this point, the father and the son had known only unity, only nearness, oneness. But at the point of Jesus' death, they would be torn apart. They would be separated. God's holy wrath would be poured out on his son, this son that he loved so much. But that sacrifice, the sacrifice that Jesus was willing to undergo, would bring the greatest blessing this world has ever known. The whole world would be blessed through Jesus' sacrifice. And through it, life and joy and freedom would be experienced abundantly as Jesus' church was multiplied and people expressed faith as Abraham expressed faith. So Abraham believed God could and would do something, even when it made no sense whatsoever. And this is why the author of Hebrews is referencing Abraham. God is surely going to keep his promises. He will keep his promises. He has kept his promises. We can look back and we can see that. Even when it seemed impossible, he still kept his promises. And he will keep his promises as well. So in this, some of us might say, well, there's this really um, negative aspect of God. Like, why would, he, why would he ask Abraham to do this with his son Isaac? That's for another time. But, but there's also this reality here. There's a really compelling picture of God that we find in this story. The fact that he is a God who makes and keeps promises. But a natural question, I think, when we get to verse 17 and the verses that we're looking at today, it's talking about the heirs of the promise. So there's this man, Abraham, and, and promises were made to him. But how does that relate to us? W what does that mean to us? How are those promises relevant to us today? And there's a New Testament chapter in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. This chapter is really helpful in this regard. Verse 16 of Galatians 3 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, who is Christ. So, God made promises to Abraham and to his offspring, which is Jesus. Okay? So, we, we tend to think of offspring of Abraham as Isaac. Okay? But Galatians 3 tells us that ultimately the offspring of Abraham is Jesus himself. And then it goes on at the end of that chapter in verse 29. 
And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the promises made to Abraham back at that time are for any who will subsequently believe the gospel, who will trust in Jesus, because those promises come through Jesus himself. Okay, now about those promises, we need to notice a key phrase in verse 15. It said, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Abraham had to wait for those promises. The taking hold of God's promise was painful. It was an arduous endeavor for Abraham that for him even many times seemed far off. Is this ever going to happen? Many times he would look at God's promise and say, I don't know how that can even be. But it did come to be. And this is true for us as well. In situations, in our life, circumstances that we encounter, we might know of God's promises, but we, they, they might seem far off to us. But the call for us is the same call as it was for Abraham, to wait patiently. And we're in a time of year where we're reminded of this reality, this season of Advent, this season of waiting for Jesus. Anticipatory waiting, for sure, but this is a time where we intentionally reflect on this fact that we are waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to come and to fully and finally fulfill his promises. Okay, we're given another interesting concept in these verses, the idea of God swearing. The idea of God swearing, some of you might be like, hmm, I want to hear more about that. Um, but w- we understand the concept being conveyed here with, with this idea of swearing. People swear by something greater than themselves, something more precious, something more valuable. And they do this to emphasize their seriousness in following through with what's been stated or promised. So I remember growing up, I would have bu- buddies that would say, I, I swear on my mama's grave, right? Like, they're pointing to something that they felt was greater, something that was substantial, and they're saying, on my mama's grave, I'm going to follow through on whatever it was they were saying. Even today, when people are sworn into significant positions, they will take an oath with their hand on a Bible. So, if I came to you, and, and I was going to swear by something, you probably wouldn't think much of whatever I was swearing on if, if I just picked up a rock and I, swe- I said, I swear by this rock. Right? That, that's not substantial or significant in any way. Or if I said, I swear by my hubcap on my car. Right? Like, who cares? Right? I wouldn't care, you wouldn't care. So when we swear on something, we're pointing to something more substantial. But God finds himself in a really unique position here. As he sought to show his seriousness, he he could look around and realize there's nothing greater than himself to swear by. So what God does is he swears by himself. He swears by his own 
name. And what becomes clear in these verses is the seriousness of God to provide certainty for those who trust in him. God wants to provide certainty for those who are professing trust in him. So remember, I mentioned this already, this is on the heels of the author writing about the immaturity of some and the falling away of others. But God, looking at those people, he wants them to have certainty. What we talked about last week as the full assurance of hope. God wants his people to have a full assurance of hope. And the author here in Hebrews is repetitively driving home God's desire to bring certainty to his people. If you read through these verses that we read this morning, there's a number of words that just stand out. Words like promise, he swore, surely, obtain the promise, confirmation, show more convincingly, guaranteed, oath, unchangeable. All of these are pointing to the fact that God made a promise, which readers of the Bible will come to know is a sure thing. God's promises are a sure thing. In fact, there's nothing that's more sure than God's promises. But then, God goes another step, and he makes an oath by swearing by his name. So these are the two unchangeable things referenced in verse 18. God's promise and his oath. Those are the two unchangeable things. So God is essentially saying, if this doesn't come to pass, if I don't deliver on my promises, I cease to be God. I am no longer who I say I am. This is how sure the promises of God are. If he has said it, it will happen. Even if we can't see it, if we doubt it, if we disbelieve it, his promises will still come to pass. And so, so it's so important for us then to consider what has God promised? We're not going to cover that this morning, but what are the promises of God? What has he stated will come to pass someday? Now I think when when we read this, and if you find yourself, if you have a personality that is kind of a skeptical personality or maybe a pessimistic personality, you might find yourself asking some questions here. First of all, like, why did God need to do an oath and a promise? It wasn't the first one good enough. But, but also, we might ask, like, is God serious here? Is he really interested in holding fast to a bunch of immature, rebellious people. Is he serious about that? Does he really want that? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we're, we're pretty fickle people. Or I can speak for myself. I'm a pretty fickle person. And so is God serious about this? I think he answers it in verse 17. It says, God desired... To show more convincingly. God desired to show more convincingly. There's nothing more certain than a promise of God. But he desired to show it with greater certainty with an oath. So, so basically, God's engaging in 
the ultimate pinky swear, is what he's doing when he's swearing by his name. God desires for those who are trusting in him to have a full assurance of hope. Full. Not partial, not almost full, a full assurance of hope. God wants his followers to know they belong to him. That they have been adopted into an eternal family, unable to be disowned. That, that, that's not even possible. Once you're adopted into God's family, it is not possible for you to be disinherited, disowned. And this is no small matter to God. He wants the heirs of his promise to know that they know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are his and that he is serious about this. God desires for his own to experience not just some joy and peace, but abundant joy and peace. Not just some life, but life to the full. And God desires to show that this is his passion. This is his longing. This is his deep yearning for you. You are loved. And that cannot change. You are loved, and when you are adopted into his family, that cannot and will not change. Like I said, a skeptic might question the viability of God's promise if he felt compelled to offer a second proof. But I think this points to God's care for his people. We're fickle in our actions, but we're also fickle in our belief as well. We naturally disbelieve. We tend to doubt. So God comes and he shows in another way the certainty of his promise with an oath. And he does it in a way that was culturally relevant at that time and that is still culturally relevant for us today. Swearing by something greater than ourselves. So he seeks to speak our language. This is love. When we do something for someone else that's meaningful to them. I can love my wife, but if I try to love her in ways that I want to be loved, that's not going to connect with her in the same way. If she wants a back rub and, and I just want to like be in the same room, She's not going to be fulfilled if, if we're sitting on separate couches when the whole time she wants me to rub her back. Loving someone else means that we're considering what's meaningful to them. And I think that's what's got, what, what God is doing here. He's considering us. He's considering our fickleness, our doubts, our tendency to disbelieve. And he's saying, my promise is sure, my oath is sure. I'm showing you again. This can't change. This cannot be broken. I love you. Now, why is this so important? Verse 18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And this is crucial. So God is perfect. God is holy. There's no flaw in him. There's no shortcoming in God. This includes for him the inability to lie. If he could lie, 
if he has lied, we would hold in question everything he's ever said or done. But God never has lied. He cannot lie. So the words that he speaks are reliable. We never have to wonder about his intentions. They are always good. He is always good. In being unchangeable, God is proving himself as trustworthy. The reason people don't trust us is because we have proven ourselves to be untrustworthy. We have failed people at times. So if God's going to these great lengths to show, to let people know that they know, that they know beyond the shadow of a doubt that his promises are true, what is his end game in all of this? Why emphasize this aspect of himself? We live in this reality where we question motivations. Even in our culture today, yeah, I find myself wondering, like, what's the financial motive for somebody in doing what they're doing? What is the financial gain that they can get out of this? Because so much of our society is driven by the bottom line. So what we find in these verses are what we call an indicative and an imperative. Okay, so an indicative is a statement of truth. It's a fact. An imperative flows out of that. It's what we do out of that true statement. So I want to give the indicative that we find here and then the imperative that comes out of this. So the indicative or the truth is that God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. This is who he is. He wants us to know this about him. This is his nature. And he is this way because he is love. This is his essence. He can't not be a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And he proves this over and over, even in the face of other people breaking their promises to God. How, how many of us, this is a rhetorical question, but how many of us have made promises to God, I'm never going to do this again. I promise if you get me out of this situation, I'll do fill in the blank. And then we go back to a sin. We break our word to God. Every single one of us has done this. We have lied to God. We have broken our promises. And yet, in the face of that, he does not break his promises to us. His promises are sure, not because of us, but because of his willingness to see them through, to keep them to the end. Okay, so the indicative, the true statement, is that God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. So if that is the indicative, then there has to be a corresponding imperative for us, a call to action. What do we do with that? And what we do with this truth is given in verses 18 and 19. It says, God desires to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose so that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Okay, I, I think this is all quite amazing, what's going on in these verses. So, 
God sent Jesus, his only son, to be our high priest. This idea of high priest has uh, been referenced already in Hebrews. It's going to get fleshed out even more in subsequent chapters. So Jesus comes to offer sacrifices for us. But not just to offer the sacrifice, but to be the sacrifice as well. So part of this picture of what we get in Jesus is he's doing everything. He's doing everything for us. So when it's speaking of hope here, it's speaking of Jesus. The hope that is set before us is Jesus being set before us. God provides the hope itself. So, so we could say hope itself is kind of the end goal. Jesus is the end goal. God's providing that, but he's also providing the encouragement along the way as well, the motivation to do this as well. So this is all a picture of salvation. God does everything. He does everything for us. But then we get this little phrase here that says, to hold fast. We are called to hold fast to Jesus. If God does everything in salvation, why do we need to hold fast to him? Maybe another way of asking this question is, does God hold fast to us, or do we hold fast to him? The answer is yes. God holds fast to us, and we are called to hold fast to Jesus. God holds us fast so that we might be compelled to want to hold fast to him. Jesus died as he did to show his love and trustworthiness, to show that he is better than any other savior that we might look at. So God doesn't hold fast to us so that we can just live any way we wish. Because I think that's how many people can kind of look at the Christian faith. Well, Jesus came, he did this, now I can live like hell. Kind of a thing. I had a, I've told this story about a college roommate that I had uh, that had this perspective. And he basically, he told us as roommates, he said, he, he was engaging in some things that some of us as roommates were a little concerned about him, and so we were talking with him about it. And he's like, it doesn't matter what I do. Jesus forgives my sin. I can live any way I want. It doesn't matter. And this is confronting this idea. Jesus holds fast to us so that we will see him for who he is and see that he is what we have always longed for. And furthermore, Jesus' death on the cross provides for us the power to say no to lesser things and to hold fast to him. So Jesus died and he rose again so that we would have everything we need to persevere in a life filled with trials and temptation. Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that we would hold fast to him in hope. But there's more here. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5 says, who by God's power 
are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's power is not given for us to indulge in selfish pursuits, nor does God's power deliver us from needing to have faith. God holds fast to us and provides us power for faith. God's power provides faith for us. God's power doesn't free us from having to believe, but it empowers us to keep on believing. Let me say that again. God's power doesn't free us from having to believe, but it empowers us to keep on believing. Even when it's hard, even when we fail, even when we see no sign of the promise being fulfilled for us. And God does this. He provides us everything we need to hold fast. He provides us the power to believe because he desires our full assurance of hope. He wants us to be fully assured in Jesus. And this is so important because what happens in our life is we become discouraged. We become impatient, beaten down, weak. We run to other things. We lose hope. We focus on things that are unimportant in life. In chapter 2, it talked about all this as drifting. Drifting away from Jesus. Drifting is a movement away from Jesus without realizing what's happening. With that in mind, I want to look at verse 19 here. It says, we have this, this being God's promise, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. The function of an anchor is stability, is rootedness, sturdiness. In the midst of the wind and waves of this life, of heart, heartache, tribulation, the difficult things in life, the anchor holds firm. What an anchor does is when it goes down, it digs into the bed of a body of water. And it digs down deeper and deeper, and it secures that boat so it won't move. And this leads us to our one point of gospel application for today, which is Jesus is our anchor. The gospel is our anchor. We will only find sturdiness in Jesus by going deep into him, by sinking our teeth into him. And not just a little bit, not just when it's convenient, but going all in on Jesus. That is where we will find sturdiness. And the reality is we all seek sturdiness in many ways and in many forms outside of Jesus. Nothing else will hold up. Nothing else can deliver for us. We're going to find that in every part of life, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to be discouraged. We're going to be let down. Last night, our family 
uh, on the, is it usually the, the Saturday of Thanksgiving? The Saturday of Thanksgiving, we decorate for Christmas in our house. And so we did that yesterday. And then uh, last night, we sat down as a family and watched Home Alone. And uh, so that was fun to do that. But in Home Alone, so Kevin, uh, main character, he is not happy with his family, right? They're, they're not kind to him, and uh, he makes this wish, and they're all gone in the morning. He's like, oh, this is great. Like, he is stoked. He's dancing around the house. My family's not here. I can do whatever I want. He got what he wanted. And a couple days later, he's yearning for his mom. This is what we do in life over and over. We say, that thing will give me what I'm longing for. And two days, two weeks, two months later, we're looking for something else. A little bit more of that thing. It just cannot satisfy us. And this is why the author of Hebrews continually says, look at Jesus. He is the only one who will not, or who will satisfy you, who will not disappoint you. He is what we need. We're going to come to this verse later in Hebrews, but Hebrews 13, 5 says, speaking of Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never. Never means never. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Where else can we look in life and find that? I love my wife dearly, more than anyone in this world. But she disappoints me. More often, I will disappoint her. We cannot find what we are looking for outside of Jesus. And we see his faithfulness in this verse. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So the question I want to leave us with this morning is, what are you anchored to? Who are you anchored to? Who or what are you looking to to give you ultimate satisfaction? Or how are you not anchored to Jesus? In what ways are you trying to be anchored to Jesus to an extent, but not all the way? You've still got part of your heart cordoned off, saying, don't touch this part. What do you not allow Jesus to touch? At least in your mind, you think Jesus can't touch it, but he controls and sees and knows everything. What are you anchored to? How are you not anchored to Jesus? Because in whatever way we're not anchored to him, it's going to prove itself. The day is coming, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to feel the uncertainty. And God comes to us because he wants his people to know the full assurance of hope in Jesus. He wants his people to know the certainty that's found in God and him delivering on his promises. We're going to take a few moments now and we're going to remember an anchor of the Christian faith. And that is the cross. The cross is where 
Jesus went and he purchased for us everything that we needed so that we can have forgiveness of sin, so that we can be saved from our sin and from ourselves. We can have hope. We talk every once in a while, say, I use this phrase, we need to have a well-worn path to the cross in our lives. We need to have a well-worn path to the cross. We need to go there regularly. We need to reflect on the fact this is who Jesus is. This is how he showed love to us. This is what he has done for us. And so we're going to take some moments here to reflect on Jesus. The fact that he gave up his body and he allowed his blood to be shed for our sins. So the worship team is going to come up in just a moment and I'm going to invite you guys to come and to observe these elements here, to reflect, to remember, to celebrate the fact that Jesus did what he did for us. If you've not trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and we want to be really clear, this is not for you, but Jesus is for you, and he invites you to come to him, put your trust in him. We also want you to know Center Church is for you as well. It's a safe place for you to wrestle through your questions express your doubts, and learn who Jesus is. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your promises.